Yes, thank you, Lord, for your covenant faithfulness. That's today's sermon, Psalm 95. Give you an opportunity to get to that. Uh, I did condense it a little bit, but man, so many good things to praise the Lord about, and especially on a day of baptisms like this, which I have to tell you, I didn't you know, necessarily coordinate that this sermon's going to go with baptisms. I had these schedules all outlined, and then they're like, hey, we really want to get baptized. And I'm like, okay, well, let's go, and we'll do it on this day. And then it matches up perfectly. So uh, as much as the way that this is, I want you to know that it's not a coincidence. It's certainly a transcendent event, and especially as we talk about covenants, because it is a, like a, a two-way street in a sense. <laughs> like we have to either be a part of it or not be a part of it altogether. And so there's no like halfways, wishy-washies, things like that. And so we'll get to all that, but like baptism, marriage, you know, the, the being a part of the Lord's covenant, those are all commitments in a sense. And so it's all things to be thankful for and give praise to the Lord for. And as you see from the notes in the sheet that there is going to be no shortage of things to be thankful to the Lord for today, uh, certainly for his character as well as what he's done. So... Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this morning so far. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your faithfulness. And Lord, I thank you for your covenants that you establish with people, of people who are wayward and, and bent on their own way, like sheep that are all led astray. And so, Lord, would you bring us back? And you give us hope in a hopeless world, and you give us peace in a, in a life that feels like there's next to no peace. And so as we continue to see that your king, your maker, your creator, your lord, your great God, and your peace, we'll see all of these things and more. So just let our spirits sing this morning, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. Hopefully you've gotten to Psalm 95 and, and, and these ramblings. And we'll go and we'll read through this. Oh, come. Let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness. When your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work, for forty years I loathed that generation, and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Let me give you the big picture, and then we'll dive in. So you see kind of in this that there, there's two contrasts, of course. There's certainly the psalm is both a psalm of praise to the Lord, for the multitude of things that he is, and um, you know we'll, we'll cover that here in the first. But in the end, it is also a challenge to the reader, much like how last week was a little bit of a challenge too, to learn from the past 
in the errors and the examples of those who have come before us. And at the end of this psalm, he's essentially giving the reader one of two things. Am I going to worship the Lord with songs, kneeling, bowing down, these things? Or am I going to be like the other people that had a heart of doubt to God's good nature, to his good will in, in worship? So let's start with all the positives before we hit the negatives. And I'm going to try to be nice on those negatives, too. <laughs> as always. But certainly in this first point, verse 1 through 5, thank you, Lord, for all that you are and all that you do. And I want to expand that too a little bit more. It's not just in these first five verses, but certainly you can see in all of these things. This is, this, this is that song of praise part, if you will. So the Lord, certainly, L-O-R-D capitalized as it is, is Yahweh, which is certainly the most holy name and most reverent name for God that Israel had for them as a nation and people. But you'll see in this too, they call him the rock of our salvation. You'll see great God, you see great king, you see that he is creator in the fact that he made the seas and the mountains and the skies and everything. He is our maker, something we don't necessarily always talk about, but important to think about on a relatively regular basis, especially as we're like, is the world an accident or is there intelligent design? And when you look at a human being, I would hope you don't think you're an accident because you're insult, you know, yourself as well as every other person on the planet. Because we're not accidents. We were made beautifully in the image of God. So, but shepherd, you'll see him as shepherd, you'll see him as covenant keeper, and then in that very, very last verse, verse 11, you'll see him as our peace, our rest, our eternal rest, if you will. So just to start off, we see the rock of our salvation. And this is, of course, poetry, and so it's always filled with metaphors. But when you think of a rock, it's solid, right? And it's strong, and it's not easily broken to any stretch of the imagination. And that's exactly why the gospel is good news, is because God has done it himself. It's not based on us, which we would not be a rock in any of this. At, at best, we get malleable hearts, if you will, that God can use and work and change us, just like Frank and Jan are having their lives change, as well as those who are in Christ's church period are having their lives changed. Um, sin's going to be cut off. Sin's going to continue to be dying. But that rock of salvation, that rest, that assurance is all based on the reality of what Jesus has done when he came to earth. Fully God, yet fully man, lived that perfect, sinless life in covenant with the Father, obeying, being obedient to his will every step of the way, never sinning, never faltering, and it is solid, and it is secure, and it is firm like a rock. And so when we see the rock of our salvation, just think about how confidently assured you are in the reality that Jesus has done everything he says he's going to do and that the promise of salvation rests entirely in that promise for belief for us, but accomplished works on God's behalf. So we see that. Then we see, certainly, great God. And especially in this next verse, that verse 3, if you will, you see the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. 
But notice the abbreviation, because certainly our minds can wander and be like, wait, there's a multitude of gods? All gods? That makes no sense. None of that makes any sense. But see, again, Lord is all capitalized, and then Lord is a great God, capital G, okay? And then you see he's a great king, capital K, and then above all gods, which is lowercase g. So there's a, there's a big difference in that, and certainly one might read it and pass over it, but when things are capitalized, they're, they're given the appropriate amount of respect that they need to be given. And so being the great king, the Lord, and the great God, but then you see gods in small letters. And so seeing him as great king, to think about it, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord over all. He is the king of creation, as they say. So there is no one higher than him. But in order to combat this a little bit, especially about the gods and the lowercase g, we have to be aware of the problem that we have within us too. And that's that we have the, the issue, and we kind of call it Napoleon syndrome, but it's big me, little God. And so we would capitalize ourselves as that G because we all live that life led astray from the ways of God that we come back and we see this and above all gods. I'm sure you've had a boss in your lifetime that thinks he's probably a god. I'm sure you've seen, you know, um, certainly other dictators and rulers in countries that have considered themselves gods over the people. You know, I think about the, 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 the Persians. I cannot remember his name for the life of me right now. But uh, he, he certainly called himself a god among gods. And so that can't be the case because there is but one God. And that's exactly what the psalmist is pointing out here to you. That display pluralism, which still exists today, that there would be a multitude of gods, not necessarily the same as in Greek and Roman times where there was a God for every single situation and every single thing you could possibly own. But there's still the issue of big me, little God syndrome in the world. And that's the problem of, of, of the sin. And of course, to point out these things and that great king aspect of him. We also have the creator because he is that great king and he's Lord over everyone and everything. And so the creator, the maker, the shepherd, the covenant keeper, and our peace. All of these work together Again, to show out that first point, Lord, thank you for all that you are. Because he is all of these things and more. This is just what the psalmist began with. And it's only 11 verses in this psalm. So, you know, you've got some of these books of the Bible that are 66 chapters. You can talk a lot about the character of God in that way. But again, keep in mind all the things that God does and provides for us and all that he does because in this second point, as much as last week, the first point in God's character and his steadfast love was most important. It's this, in this second point, God's covenant and commitment that matters a lot too. Without the steadfast love, there would not be a covenant commitment in a sense. So last week when we talked about all those characteristics of who God is in, in that has said that steadfast love, that loyal love, that faithful love, that unfailing love, all of those things. Now we approach that covenant part. And in the second point, the, oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. 
Look at verse 1 and look at verse 6. And it kind of shows, again, the Christian life in action very simply because it is both word in the first few verses because we're just talking about singing and praising. Yeah, I don't know that to be so loud. <coughs> and then in verse 6, you see the deeds. Like, let us bow down, let us kneel. Again, so it's word and deed. And it kind of lends to truth that this isn't just a one and done kind of thing. This is our talk. This is our actions. This is our character. All of these things matter. So in light of all of these things mattering, you need to see that next verse, that seven, the first three parts. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. So this is a covenant relationship. This isn't a covenant signing, and then you're going to pay like a mortgage every month, or your car payment, or anything like that, or some type of agreement, in a sense. God initiated, okay, God has initiated this, he has determined the elements of the covenants. He's confirmed his covenant with humanity in both word as well as deed, just like what it's showing us here in this. It is unilateral in the sense that it is not a, a, a bilateral type of agreement. And it means like this, people, meaning us, are recipients, not contributors. We are not expected to offer certain elements to the bond in the relationship that we have in regards to that salvation. But we are called to accept the covenant as it is offered. Okay? To keep it as it is demanded and laid out. And then to receive the results that God by oath assures us he will give us and not withhold from us. So think about this covenant relationship in this too. Um, what was going on certainly back in those days was like a king and a vassal relationship. And it might be some of the easiest ways for us to understand a king and then the subjects, right? Certainly the king is on there. And as scripture has told us in here, he is our king above all other gods. Whether we consider ourselves a god, whether our parents consider themselves gods over us, or our bosses consider themselves, doesn't matter. There's still one above all of them, most definitely. So you've got the king and subject. Now think about it in this way too. You've got the creator and you've got the created. You've got the maker and you've got the made. I was going to say making, but that's not correct. <laughs> Then you have the shepherd and the sheep, okay? Now you have the covenant giver and then the covenant acceptor. All of these highlight that bond of relationship that we are to have with our Lord and Savior, which is why it's not a one and done kind of thing. Like, oh, I've repented this one time. I'm good. You know, you get to get out of jail. Free card in a sense. But that's not the case. This was always meant to be a relationship. God has created for himself and people for his own possession. The beautiful thing about this psalm, and I think the author of Hebrews gets a lot from this psalm, especially as he quotes like verse 7 through 11 on all of this, is highlighting that, again, that relationship that we have and to remain steadfast in the faith that we have. So we see too many times this right attitude of covenant relationship 
And then as we go on into the other part, the latter half of this text in the psalm, we're going to see certainly the, the contrast in attitude and behavior. And what's interesting and certainly what's scary about this and, and those relationships is that, man, like they were there. They saw him. I think I understand why Jesus says, blessed are those who believe and yet have not seen. Because, man, even Israel back in the day, in the example that they used, Israel was there, they saw. And yet they still lacked belief and trust that God had good intentions for their life. Which makes me wonder where so many people stand today, too. Like, you know, the problem of sin is a gigantic problem. It destroys lives and people. But is it God's fault for that sin? Do we blame Him otherwise? So... Keep in mind, certainly, baptism, as we've seen this morning, was an acceptance of that covenant to go into that relationship, into that bond together, to bend the knee, as the psalmist says, worship and bow down and to kneel before the Lord our Maker. Like, we've realized that as much as we want to be in control, we're really not in that control. As much as we think we can do it on our own, we really cannot do it on our own. And especially when it comes to the rock of our salvation. Because when we look at biblical terms, again, if anyone has sinned, how do you get holy again? It's impossible. So you're, you're guilty. So how do you get unguilty? And that's by the trust and the faith in the Lord Jesus that he paid for our sins. Because we have no chance otherwise of paying for our own sins. His righteousness was imputed unto us. Praise the Lord in all of these things. And so when we think unilaterally, especially in this covenant and seeing God as shepherd and us as sheep, or God as maker and us as the maid, or God as creator and us as the created, or God as king or us as vassal, the list of, of metaphors and analogies continue to go on. But marriage is one of those things too, and it's actually bilateral from a human perspective. But when we would go to Ephesians 5 and we see how husbands and wives, and we see you know, the marriage, certainly you know, uh, wives submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord, and husbands love your wives sacrificially as Jesus loved the church. God created marriage also to show that intimate relationship that we as his church are supposed to have with our Lord. The church is affectionately called the bride of Christ because Jesus is our groom. He is the husband. He is the one we are to respect in all decisions and in all ways, in all aspects of our lives. So really, that relationship and that commitment that God has, for especially for people who are historically wayward, and as you'll see from this next point, even people that he saved and has done miracles for that they've seen, their unbelief and their lack of trust that Jesus is indeed good and will always be good. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. God is love. All of these things. So again, verse 1 through 7c, we see the right attitude of covenant relationship where we praise him with our mouth, word, and we bow down, you know, kneel, those things. That's deed, but certainly we can expand deed to be so many other things throughout Scripture, but in this moment, that's what it is. And then here's, here's what we have in 7D through the rest of it, is that 
contrastive attitude and behavior to avoid. So this first part, today if you hear his voice, how awesome that is. But here is Shabbat, okay? And it means to listen. And it's a symbol of the closeness of relationship as well as an example to be obedient to the covenant with which you have entered with the Lord. Because what we read in the rest is the unfaithfulness of the covenant that they've done in the Lord. And I just want to read briefly uh, a part from Psalm 81, and I certainly encourage you all to read it. It's actually entitled, Oh, that my people would listen to me. Psalm 81. And it says, I am the Lord your God, I'm starting in verse 10. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Let them go. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. There's importance to this in the sense, of course, that God is speaking to us on a daily basis. And he says today, every day is another opportunity to walk in the love of Christ, to put into action that love that God has given us, to speak as well as to walk and do deeds in the Lord's name for his glory and ultimately our good in all of this. So. That closeness of relationship and everything, it's important that we know that the Lord is with us every single day in all of this. And so he was, and especially with Egypt. So as we go on to this next section, um, Exodus chapter 17, verse 1 through 7, explains specifically what happens in this. Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah and on the day at Massa. So I'm going to read that passage here. It's Exodus 17, verse 1 through 7. And it says this, All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and taking your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? And this psalm is kind of a reflection of that too. What type of nation you know, or people are we ultimately in, in all of this? We have much to be grateful and thankful to the Lord for. And I suppose if we really wanted to come 
complain about sin and the atrocities of sin. We can take that to the Lord. Maybe he will effectively heal us and call us home then. But living in this world, there is no end to the sin until this world is officially wiped out, until it goes away. And we know that that's going to happen in Scripture as we read through Revelation. So Massa means to test or to put to the test. And Meribah means to quarrel, to have strife, or to find fault. It's kind of where most people are at in this world today, unfortunately, is finding fault. And so we see this challenge from the author of the psalm to learn from the past and those errors and examples of those who came before us. At the end of this psalm, ultimately, kind of the decision for the reader is, will I sing, worship, bow down, and kneel before the Lord, or will I harden my heart in doubt of his good nature? Is he really with us, or is he not with us? And this is kind of going back to a few sermons ago again, continuing to look up and to see the holiness of God, as opposed to the contrast of looking back in your life. Again, we learn from past experiences. That's what we call history, right? Like, do we, though, always? Not necessarily, right? It's really up to the individual, and that's kind of the challenge. Do we look at the past of what God has done in our lives and give him praise? Like, even though we might be in a valley, there's still reason to give the Lord praise because this isn't it, and he has saved us and called us to a much higher calling in our lives. And we will be with him someday in heaven. So don't neglect that covenant commitment. For those that are not covenantally committed, you can see and you can tell because uh, as much as Ron was talking, like if Jesus is important to you, then why aren't you talking about him? Why aren't you inviting him to your dinner table? Why aren't you inviting him in your car rides? Why aren't you singing songs of praise? Why, why if Jesus is Lord, Savior, King, Creator, Maker, Shepherd over you, there's got to be something there. <laughs> he can't be neglected. He can't be put on a shelf like waiting for a thing. This is a relationship. Your life is based on relationships. When you think about the two great commandments, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself, that is entirely relationships. Everything about Christianity is about relationships. It's not about duties. It's not about services. That's religion. Religion implies a works-based system where you, as an individual, are trying to use that works-based system to appease a holy God. But praise be the Lord that our holy God, who we know to be the truth, instead of making us climb up the mountain, he came down the mountain, came in the flesh, lived that perfect sinless life on our behalf, so that at the end, all we need is the faith to know that Jesus is the way, he is the truth, he is the life, and that our lives are in his hands and his control. And we have that faith to see this. Also, that very last verse, this, this is something that the world needs to hear as we continue to, you know, I think about uh, Matthew chapter 6, consider the lilies of the field, they don't toil and spin or anything like that, yet they are beautifully arrayed. All human beings are toiling and spinning and trying to get their way and their own thinking and following cultural standards for their life. But God's rest is God's completed 
completed offer of salvation for the sinner. So that your identity, when you ask, who am I? It's not wrapped up in the smaller things. It's not wrapped up in your work. It's not wrapped up in being a son or a daughter. It is not wrapped up in being a parent. It is not wrapped up in how much money you have. It is not wrapped up in the cars you drive. It is not wrapped up in the size of your home. It is not wrapped up in anything other than what the Lord says it is. And we, according to the Lord, despite being sinners, are beautifully created in His image with gifts and abilities and talents. And I don't think anybody in this room or anybody listening can deny that while every human being certainly has a dark side, every single human being certainly has a beautiful, amazing, creative side that comes from the Lord. And that's all of us. And so God's rest is in that completed offer of salvation because it is not a performance. Your life is not a performance. Baptisms this morning were not a performance. They were acts of obedience. They were acts of love, a sincere, genuine love and affection for their Lord. Man, and we all see this on a regular, consistent, daily basis. I would love that we would do more baptisms on a regular basis all the time, but this eternal rest, man, that's the gospel. That's why it's such good news. Because if you want to do religion, and you want to make it based on your performance, have at it. It's not going to get you anywhere. And in fact, it's going to leave you hopeless. It's probably going to make you depressed because you're not going to measure up. You think about all the earthly standards that we have for beauty, for health, fitness, monetary status, you know, money status, things like that. Go ahead, try to measure up. You're going to toil, you're going to spin, you're probably going to end up coming short again. That's why Ecclesiastes is my favorite book, because it made me realize just how much I was really striving after wind. Because once I got something that I thought I wanted, and then I played with it for a little while, then I was <laughs> And I was like, oh, that was kind of fun, but it was boring, and, and, and now what do I do? What do I do with it? Like, the continual striving after wind. So find this eternal rest. See this. See the contradiction of the people. Understand, are we going to worship the Lord? Is he important to us? Or are we going to grumble and complain like Israel? And man, it, it continues to blow my mind. But it shouldn't, by any stretch of imagination. Because I'm like, okay, so they saw the ten plagues. Wow, that's pretty impressive. Okay, so they saw the parting of the Red Sea. They saw manna coming down from heaven. They saw God in whirlwind by day and flame at night. They saw all of these things and more, and yet still doubted God's character. And yet he saved them from slavery in Egypt. Don't think we're any better. There's tons of people today who don't acknowledge Jesus yet claim to be saved by Jesus. They will have nothing to do with him whatsoever. But again, that act of baptism was that proclamation. They want something to do with them. All of this. So I hope we get opportunities to share the love that Christ has had with us. To give people hope in a hopeless world. Because, man, thank you, Lord, for your covenant faithfulness. Because you see the people that you saved, first and foremost, 
the people coming out of Egypt that got to behold some of God's most miraculous miracles still doubted his good nature. And they're like, did you bring us out here to die? Like, man, like how could you even think that? But we do that all the time. You know, I've certainly had, especially in this past year, some wine moments. Why? Why are we doing this? But do I doubt God's kindness and goodness? No. Am I irritated by sin? Absolutely. I'm ready for it to go away. If Jesus came back today, I'm ready. I'm okay with that. I don't think there's anything else in this world that I need to see or hear or be a part of or do. I certainly love relationships and family and friends and things like that. But when it comes to this matter of sin and dealing with sin on a regular basis, you can keep it. <laughs> I don't want it anymore. I'm done with it. Can I sell it back? I wish. But you can't. And so, again, praise the Lord that despite us being these ridiculously wicked, wayward people, that He is still our sheep, our shepherd, and we are still His sheep. And there's still that covenant bond and that relationship that we have together. So, praise the Lord in all of these things. Thank you, Lord Jesus for who you are. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you've done. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. And thank you, Lord, for establishing this covenant, you know, first and foremost with Noah, then with Abraham, then with um, Mo Moses, then with David, and now, lastly, through Jesus. It's the five big covenants, ratified establishments. So, man, praise the Lord. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, what a beautiful morning. What a beautiful song of encouragement just to see that certainly you are with us and, and you want this relationship. This is why we're here in the first place. So Lord, let us continue to build this relationship with you. Continue to show us your goodness and your kindness and your mercy in, in our lives. Continue to show us that has said that steadfast love and that covenantal commitment that you have for all of your children and believers. And Lord, certainly, as you said in Scripture and in John, the sheep hear my voice and they know my name, and no one will snatch them out of my hands. Let us find that, as well as let us find that eternal rest for our lives, that we don't toil and spin and continue to go around and around and around until we are just exhausted. Let us find that rest in you. Let us find our identity in you. Let us find our hope in you. Let us find our peace in you. And certainly, Lord, let us continue to share that love that you've poured into us so that we know that despite our suffering, it produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because of your great love you've poured into us. So all in all, in all of these things, Lord Jesus, we give you thanks because without the knowledge of the truth in you, none of us would be standing, sitting, worshiping you today. So we love you, Jesus, as you know, and it's in your name we will forever pray, and we look forward to spending